Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is a beautiful Friday. It's a Three Martini Lunch. I am Chad Benson in uh, for Greg Corumbus today. Jim Garrity, as always, is here. And uh, it is good to be back on the program. So we got you good, we got you bad, and we got you crazy today. Let's start with the good-ish is, man, those numbers for jobs, uh, inflation, recession, it's a weird world, but we're creating jobs and there's plenty of jobs available. Yeah, I know. As much as folks, Chad, first of all, thanks for being here. Um, Those of us on the right generally have been much more uh, outspoken about saying the economy is in a state of recession. We've had two straight quarters of shrinking GDP. But I think everyone should acknowledge it's an unusual recession because usually recessions are marked by increasing unemployment and layoffs. And the unemployment rate is has been low. And today the numbers were said it's now you know 3.5%. It's gone down even a little bit. The, the two numbers that really jumped out today. So Wall Street and economic analysts were expecting something in the neighborhood of 258,000 jobs to be created during the month. Instead, it was 528,000 jobs in a month. I think there's a question of dyslexia or maybe just a typo. They, they, they flipped the numbers there or something like that. Um, if you're really looking for good news, probably the best part of this uh, report was wage growth. It is up uh, nine. Okay, let me make sure I got the numbers correct here. Uh, five, you know, half of 1% for the month, 5.2% for the same time a year ago. Now that is less than inflation. So you are not yet getting ahead uh, and in fact, your purchasing power is being reduced, but you'd still rather see job, you know, wage growth uh, going up as much as possible. And those are pretty decent numbers. The problem is, is that this is probably not going to be good news on the inflation front. We get numbers on that next month, the updated consumer price index numbers. And the philosophy of a lot of economists is if you want inflation to go down, well, then actually you might need something kind of like a recession in that you have people getting laid off. They are, don't have as much money to spend. They stop spending as much. And then retailers are forced to bring down prices because their customer base can't afford to buy it the way they used to. That was the traditional thinking. Uh, there's now a genuine question about whether uh, you know that that's really the way things are going to play out here. My guess is you're going to see the Fed raise interest rates another three quarters of a point next month. And I suspect... Uh, the projections for the consumer price index numbers were you know, around 9%. Some were saying 9.2%. I don't think we're going to get good news on that next month. And I got to be honest, I don't expect you're going to see great news on inflation in September or October either. So all in all, the economy could be in much better shape, but at least we're still creating jobs at a nice, healthy, sustained clip. Hey, Jim, how much of it, and I've talked to a lot of economists out there when you look, and so much of this has to do with the fact that once we had that crazy COVID thing, everybody went home. A lot of people didn't come back to the same, you know, positions. They they decided to gig, gig economy it. Uh, they took another job. So there's plenty of jobs available, but, you know, you can... You can say we created a bunch of jobs. There's plenty of jobs available, but there's also plenty of people who decided we're not going back to work that way again. And so it's recession, non-recession, whatever it is that's going on, it's odd. It is. You know, I'm about to uh, head over to Europe next month. And I've often, you know, joked when I go over there because years back, my wife and I went over to Paris and we're sitting in the Paris cafe in the middle of the day and 
having our cappuccino and you know the the great bread and all the, and you're seeing all these people all just sitting there enjoying the beautiful weather like god you know europeans really know how to live because they don't know how to work <laughs> because it's like two o'clock on a thursday and everybody's out sitting on the at the uh sitting in, at the cafes and other countries look at america and see workaholics they see us as taking less vacation they see us as working long hours we have we have a thriving economy we have a lot of economic productivity. There are a lot of upsides to having a culture that is very workaholic. But I think you also see a lot of people getting burned out. And the idea that certain people, maybe that lifestyle is for them. They're driven. They love what they do. And then there are other people who don't want to live that. They'd rather have something akin to work-life balance. And heading into COVID or long before, you saw a lot of you know profiles and lifestyle pieces about people trying to navigate work-life balance. And, you know, do you have enough time with your kids? Do you have enough time to do the things in life that make you feel fulfilled? Or do you feel like you're chained to your desk and all that stuff? So I suspect there are a lot of people who, when they were actually, you know, were, you know, like severed from their offices over the course of COVID said, you know what? I'm not getting what I want out of life. I don't want to spend my life in the office. I don't want to spend my life working so hard. I want to spend my time doing things that are more fulfilling to me, whether it's uh, family time or volunteerism or some cause or something like that. And that's a factor, I suspect, in the great resignation and the difficult labor shortage that's continuing and things like that. Look, let's face it, some jobs are dirty jobs and there aren't a lot of people who want to do that. And maybe that's a wage issue or maybe it's just a flat out that at any wage, you can't forget people who want to do those kinds of jobs. But I do think that there is this um, sustained reevaluation of the balance of power between employers and employees. For those of us who work, that's generally pretty good news, but we see the consequences of it. Um, what's that old saying? A worker's paradise is actually a consumer's hell. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that was your good and in many ways your bizarre. Let's move to the bad because the Inflation Reduction Act that may reduce inflation on the edges uh, looks like it is going to uh, uh, get through because Kirsten Cinema out here in Arizona has decided, hey, uh, if you do this for me, I'll, I'll get on board with that. And really, it's a climate tax. Yeah. Now, one of the thi- now I had said earlier in the week uh, that time was on Kirsten Cinema's side. That basically she had enormous leverage now, and that the closer it, you know, we're, the Congress is supposed to go on to their summer break at the end of this week. Um, they may extend it a few days, but you know they got to do that. And every you know vulnerable red to purple state Democratic senator wants to get back and starts campaigning. If they're going to have this vote, they're going to tout the accomplishment, but they're also going to be voting for tax hikes. And I imagine you can just imagine the Republican ads right now. You know, Raphael Warnock voted to raise taxes as we're in a recession and stuff like that. So I suspected cinema was in no rush to get a deal. Well, wrong for, you know, wrong for me, but the other oddity to this, uh, I was on Hugh Hewitt's program earlier this week and his theme of the show was Kirsten Cinema had as much leverage as any senator had ever had in recent memory in trying to get her to sign on to this. So what should she ask for? And Hugh had all kinds of crazy ideas like expanding the size of the Navy or a new nuclear plant in every state or, you know, and clearly, all that cinema really wanted was some tweaking around the edges. They're, they should, did they make some changes? Yes. Uh, mostly, I think it ties to you know carried interest and things like that. It was basically, from our perspective, small potatoes. And it's kind of surprising that that was what hung up the uh, negotiations. You'll, you know, listeners probably remember Schumer and Manchin announced this and had not bothered to reach out to Kirsten Cinema and say, "Hey, we think we've got a deal here." 
just give her a heads up and keep her in the loop. And so, some, you know, the fact that she had not signed on for a week was probably a sign uh, that she was, you know, not going to be an easy yes. Turns out she wasn't as hard a yes as we had thought. It certainly looks like this thing is going to pass. Maybe the parliamentarian, par- parliamentarian is going to, you know, quibble with this here and there. But all in all, uh, you know, this looks like it's going to passage. And we have one more big spending bill and tax hikes right before the midterms. Oh, good times. Good times. And uh, speaking of the midterms, that leads us to crazy. CPAC chairman Matt Schlapp explains why firing Nancy Pelosi and winning the midterms needs to be our white hot focus or 2024 might not even matter. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Matt and I also discuss how a small number of leftists are ruining our corporations and institutions and why conservative ideas are better because they work and they make us happy. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I have said it a thousand times. Both of these parties know how to, Jim, grab and snatch uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. And the reality is, could the Republicans be the ones trying to snatch that victory uh, uh, out of that, uh, you know, that their mouth? Or are they going to say, you know what, we'll take defeat instead of victory? Yeah. So, look, it's not necessarily time to panic. And there's an an argument that, you know, late summer is bedwetting season where people get, you know, start freaking out about the state of the parties in the midterms. Um, But I think Matthew Continetti in a new column summarizes it very succinctly. He says, Republicans may have thought the the Democratic majority in Congress would collapse under its own weight. And they learned this week that it won't. Now, most people still think Republicans are going to win the House, although the generic ballot numbers are getting tighter and tighter. Now, usually the Democrats are ahead on that by, you know, a decent number of percentage points. So, by itself, this doesn't mean Republicans won't take the House. I think they will. It's, they only have to win about six seats or so. The real question is uh, the Senate, and I think there's good reason to be worried about that. That doesn't look like as much of a slam dunk, even though a lot of the territory is in states Republicans usually do well in. On this podcast, a bunch, I have lamented how poorly Mehmet Oz is performing in Pennsylvania. That's trying to, That's a seat currently held by Pat Toomey. And Pennsylvania is a state, the Republicans, it's a purple state. You know, Trump won it by a, a narrow margin. This should be a state where Republicans at least have a shot. And you know, it looks like uh, Oz is down double digits. The other one that kind of jumped out at me and I've written about in the corner today, um, people talk about Herschel Walker and uh, you know Arizona and some of these other races. Um, I think Ohio might be a race that Republicans are sleeping on because, look, Trump won the state by eight points. Um, DeWine was reelected in 2018 when Democrats were winning everywhere. Uh, The state's congressional uh, delegation is like uh, 12 Republicans, four Democrats. Ohio is generally a pretty darn Republican state. And so you look at this, you're like, okay, J.D. Vance, maybe he's a little idiosyncratic or unusual for a Republican candidate. He's up against Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan's trying to, you know, act like he's the most populist Republican he can. It's a very Trumpy state. Vance should win. But I went and I looked this morning. It's interesting. You have yet to see in this cycle a poll where J.D. Vance is ahead of Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan's lead can be ranged anywhere from three percentage points to 11 percentage points. Now, I'm not saying this means Tim Ryan is destined to win. Uh, but it does line up with complaints I hear from readers in Ohio who say they're constantly seeing Tim Ryan ads and they haven't seen any J.D. Vance ads since the primary ended. Um, complaints that Vance isn't doing the county fairs and all the other t- usual events you'd expect a Senate candidate to appear at. 
Um, just a general sense that this is so far a very underwhelming campaign. Now, Vance is launching a new set of ads. It's it's late. It's you know we're getting into August. This isn't when it really matters. But I do think it is a little troubling that this is a state that probably Republicans thought that if they'd have either had in their back pocket or could win with a you know uh, just a little bit of effort. So far, it does not look like a slam dunk, and, and uh, I think there's good reason for Republicans to be nervous about whether this midterm that they thought was going to be a red wave or a red tsunami, well, maybe it might end up being just a red trickle. You know, it's interesting because I'm out here in Arizona and uh, a lot of these candidates are, you know, they're very MAGA. Uh, you know, yesterday I spoke to Rusty Bowers, who was the uh, the head of the Senate, who, of course, had to here in Arizona, had to go and speak. He was subpoenaed. He went out and spoke and he got censured and he lost the other day to a guy who uh, – uh, says that the devil stole the last election and he's going to spend all of his time fighting the devil. When you when you allow certain things to, you, you know, he said to us, conservatism is the enemy of MAGA. You, you've got a lot of these people who are running bizarre campaigns or no campaigns at all outside of trying to get through the primary. And now can they expand that tent? And and some of them just don't seem to understand what campaigning. Mehmet Oz is one of them. We had Mark Bernovich, our AG, was running. He just stopped campaigning about two months ago. Just never saw an ad, just disappeared. It's weird. Yeah, I, I you know, one of the anecdotes that I go back to every now and then is a special house election down in South Carolina. It was Mark Sanford launching his comeback bid. My parents live down there. I feel like I know that area of the country a little better than, than others. And look, Mark Sanford, after infamously hiking the Appalachian Trail, uh, does have a, uh, you know, obviously was going into that race with a lot of baggage. And the Democratic nominee was Stephen Colbert's sister. Well, Sanford was doing 10 events a day, uh, meeting with people in front of grocery stores and all kinds of stuff. Col- uh, Colbert's sister was doing one event a day very tightly scripted, short remarks, read from a podium, not taking questions and stuff like that. And Sanford won pretty easily at a time when Democrats had spent money and thought they had a shot at this. It's a pretty Republican-leaning district, but they thought this unique set of circumstances, they thought they had a shot. And it turns out they didn't. I think Sanford out-hustling the opposition made a big difference. I'm kind of baffled by this, about why candidates don't do this. Now, look, again, it's August. Maybe some of these candidates are going to do this a lot more between now and election day. But some of these campaigns really do seem to think of, oh, well, we've got a good good political environment. That's going to do a lot of the heavy lifting for us. Don't count on that. And I, I, I don't know if these candidates are lazy or the campaigns are lazy, or they just look at the idea of having the candidate out of the campaign trail is a uh, potential risk for things to go wrong. But if you don't go out there and ask, ask people to vote for them, if you don't go out there and ask people to vote for you, they're not going to do it. Yeah. All politics is local, all the way down to that one person you meet in the line at McDonald's. Uh, it's always good to be here. It is the, uh, that was your good, your bad, and, and your crazy. It is three martini lunch. I'm Chad Benson. Follow me at Chad Benson Show if you want to follow along. Jim, where do they get you? Uh, I can be found at Jim Garrity and on Twitter and, uh, as always, at National Review, writing the Morning Jolt newsletter and usually in the corner several times a day. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on. And uh, you guys have all a great weekend. Hey, guys. 
guys, we know it's hard to keep up with all the news these days, but don't worry because we're here to talk and laugh about it all. More people need to be questioning why China is buying a bunch of U.S. land. Fully vaxxed Biden has the Rona and the White House is still pushing off the fact that we're in a recession. Hey, it's the Chicks from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.